I spent a while talking about how historians find out about the past, but now I must discuss what we do with this information. While it is one thing to study human history in order to know when events occurred, many people have made attempts to find meaning in it all. The questions beg, why does our history matter? What can our history tell us about ourselves today? What was the causation or chain of events that led to event X happening? Is there a natural progression to history, like some underlying process of growth or progress? Can a study of historic happenings help us predict future events? These are deep and loaded questions, but it hasn't stopped historians. One of the most familiar attempts to reveal hidden truths of history was by historian Arnold J. Toynbee in his 12-volume work, A Study of History. This was a major book series, with the first volume published in 1934, and the last not seeing the light of day until 1961. Through an exhaustive comparison of world civilizations, Toynbee attempted to find a set lifestyle for society. He imagined civilizations like living organisms, being born, reaching adolescence, experiencing a peak age, and eventually declining into unrecognizability. Toynbee argued that the key to a civilization's success was in the efforts of what he called creative minorities, who were essentially rulers that sought solutions to any issues facing the societies they oversaw. If the issues threatening a civilization were at the right caliber, just shy of insignificant but far below apocalyptic, then they can be overcome and society grows. If the opposite occurs and a civilization's leader ceases to come up with good solutions, then that nation simply faces desolation. Toynbee's study of history relied on a supposed notion that all civilizations share a form of destiny. Now, ideas like destiny are ambiguous matters, there's no hint that the future is written in stone and no way to test that idea scientifically. Many critics have pointed this out among their reviews, and so Toynbee's view of history has faded into obscurity. The writer H.G. Wells, familiar to many through his science fiction work, completed the outline of history in 1920, right at the end of the First World War. His outline was just that, a rundown of the events of the past. One of the larger overarching themes in Wells' book was that the history of humankind was marked by a near-ubiquitous goal of creating the most beneficial and most educated societies. Over time, different nations slowly drew themselves together through alliances, and there was to be a steady path that culminated towards a single nationality, humanity. War, famine, poverty, nationalism, and prejudice would have to be fervently abandoned while reason, science, and compassion be embraced wholeheartedly. One world religion, one education system, a democratic political system, and a single economic system that benefited all. This vision of utopia was common among many 20th century authors, as the horrors of World War I provoked many into wishing for a better future for humanity. Indeed, some have even argued that this great war would be the last major war, and that their vision of a perfect world was actually on the horizon. While there can be no doubt that a brighter future for the human species is a noble goal, the failure of H.G. Wells and of the other utopian authors laid on the circumstances of the world history that happened following World War I. Instead of the modern world state, they saw the Great Depression and the tenfold devastation of World War II. The vision of world history as a road to utopia was quickly expunged, and by the time of the final revised edition of H.G. Wells' Outline of History, in 1971, the final chapter became sharply agnostic and worrisome. Nikolai Berdyayev, a philosopher, released The Meaning of History in 1923. His analysis was, in the end, rather pessimistic. He saw history as an endless series of human failures, and that any attempts at achievement were doomed to fail as well. 
Likewise, the historian Oswald Spengler saw that the outcome of all world civilizations was decline and death. Like Toynbee, he suggested that societies had natural life cycles and elaborated on the idea in his 1918 book, The Decline of the West. In an honest and thorough examination of world history, it is truly difficult to find any indication that societies truly die at all. While many distinct cultures have certainly seen their day, aspects of those cultures have survived to the present day. Pick the Phoenicians, for example, who no longer dominate the Mediterranean and its trading routes, but have provided the world with the modern alphabet. Most of these attempts to find an overarching theme to world history have not succeeded, but there was at least as many attempts to uncover the lessons of history. I, like many historians, would agree that there are valuable things to learn from an understanding of the past. One of the most famous and continuously repeated quotations regarding this matter comes from a Spanish philosopher, George Santayana. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, These words derive from a volume of Santayana's book, The Life of Reason, from 1905 to 1906. Admittedly, the quote has been reproduced many times into different forms, but the meaning is generally the same. What Santayana was arguing was that human beings should look to the events of the past to see what has worked and what is not, so that they do not make the same mistakes twice. The usefulness of this philosophy can only work so far, because in principle it relies on the suggestion that human affairs are predictable. If something is done one way and had this outcome, then if repeated, the outcome will be the same. Many philosophers have debated the truth of this matter. How exactly can we be so sure that things really play out in this way? What about third time's the charm? These are questions that historians have debated fervently, especially when political parties and their followers suggest solutions that have been attempted in earlier times to little avail. What about the notion of progress? Progress is defined as the improvement of some aspect of life. Many have argued that history has an inherent progress, and that human societies naturally follow a path from primitive to advanced. Things have steadily improved, and the world of the 21st century is a better place than any other period in history. Now, on the surface, this seems to be true. Human life expectancy has risen over the years, the birth rate is higher than the death rate, so children are actually surviving through childhood, literacy rates have increased, education is now available for more youth, and so on. However, there are cracks in the facade. Certain aspects of human existence are improving, but our global environment is failing rapidly. The world's natural resources are in decline, wild populations of plants and animals and their habitats are being wiped out with no replenishment. Not to forget the rise in carbon dioxide emissions from the burning of fossil fuels that is warming our atmosphere at such an alarming rate that vast populations in Africa, India, and the Pacific Islands are dying due to their effects. The oceans are swamped with microplastics and are gaining acidity, and many parts of the land are no longer viable for agriculture. Human beings have created a healthier and well-educated population, but they have also disregarded the natural environment that this same population depends on. What measure, then, is this supposed progress if all that we've gained can so easily be taken away in the coming decades? Human beings have bit the hand that fed them, and that hand is their own. Some historians have more or less abandoned any suggestion that progress is something that can be measured, or even something that matters. Historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto has provided a strong counterargument to the idea that there is a progression from primitive to advanced. He writes, Strictly speaking, primitives do not exist. All of us are the products of an equally long evolution. Groups of uncontacted peoples in the Amazon, subsisting on foraged meals, are on equal ground with the citizens of Sao Paulo, the most populated city on Earth. These Amerindian peoples have lasted as long as their Latinx neighbors. 
When you travel back in time far enough, you find a common ancestral population that started with the same circumstances. Similarly, one could argue that periods of time in the past were actually better than modern times. See the various arguments by archaeologists about the apparently better health of pre-agricultural groups than their farmer descendants. A foraging lifestyle is difficult, and starvation was often at your doorstep, but at least you didn't have to worry about arthritis, cavities, or monocultural diets. Progress is at best illusionary. As a concept, it is useless to the historian and is not a view that I will be subscribing to in this series. I've discussed the various ways in which historians can know the past, and I've followed with a rough and patchy look at how those same historians have attempted to make sense of this knowledge. But what about you, the listener? If my presumption is correct, you're listening to this series in the hopes that you will gain some insight into the history of the world. Or at least you're here because you genuinely like history as a topic. I enjoy history because of the doors that it opens. The worlds of the past offer a far more enriching experience than any imaginary world, in my opinion. In a fictional setting, any and all of its laws and causations are already set in stone. Everybody has a name, every place has a known location and a system of rules, and every event has an explanation. Historic times do not have this luxury. The farther you go back in time, the more difficult our understanding becomes. There's always a sense of mystery here. There are details that are still unknown, details that may never be known. The past is enticing and exciting, and that's why it saddens me to see world history treated with such carelessness by both young and old. In many polls, history classes are among the least popular subjects among students. Some schools have even removed history as a compulsory subject, relegating it to an elective. National histories are often given presence over world history, and while it is certainly valuable to know the history of a nation to which the students belong, most of the time those classes are swamped with nationalism and falsehoods. Key facts about historic individuals and events are inaccurately told, and these errors are repeated through textbook after textbook. The complexities and nuances of battles or political debates are downgraded into good versus evil stories as if they were fairy tales. Lists of dates and names are required to be memorized, but teachers often fail to give explanations as to why these records are important in the first place. Then comes the issue of so-called great man history, the idea that all the events of the past are the result of singular men, and it's usually always men, and the actions they took to change the world. Any historian can tell you how difficult this view is to hold in light of a proper understanding of the past. It's not so simple. There is rarely, if ever, any role of Socratic discussion in these classes. Textbooks treat the historical narrative as a series of facts that are to be regurgitated. Now, concerned and responsible individuals are working to change this, and there are some beautifully rich resources out there for students of history, but there's still much work to be done. The famous musician Sting offers a curious account of his time in history class. He said, I once asked my history teacher how we were expected to learn anything useful from this subject, when it seemed to me to be nothing but a monotonous and sordid succession of robber baron scumbags devoid of any admirable human qualities. I failed history. History is important because it is our shared heritage. It is the accumulation of millennia of individuals with now unknown names who were able to adapt themselves to their environments and then create their own habitats. Despite the distances, peoples around the world fostered beautiful and rich cultural traditions that have slowly changed over time and influenced each other. There were times of dread and death, but these were punctuated by periods of hope. Hope that always kept people inventing and exploring and creating. That you are here, right now, is the result of an endless chain of individuals who survived despite the odds. A proper history of the world can do more than recount the stories of the past. It's a chance to 
answer questions about the present and the future. The issues of our times, the circumstances that led to the development of all our conditions, the reasons that peoples and nations act the way they do, all those quandaries are available to you when you explore world history. That is what history is. With all this being said, what makes me qualified to talk to you about the history of the world? I'm a United States citizen of Puerto Rican and French-Canadian heritage. I'm a trans woman and a secular humanist. I've never left the United States or its territories. My experiences are not universal to all people, not even members of my own family. Why should I speak for Earth? This is the same problem that faces all historians around the world. Some have solved the problem by collecting their peers together to tell the story, so that no single voice takes prominence. Most world history books or television productions are the result of work by multiple people from various backgrounds and historic fields. Singular authors of world history do exist, of course, but to complete their task, they have often found themselves having to move beyond their sphere of life in an adventure of thinking outside the box, and often the results fail due to personal prejudices slipping in anyway. With an appropriate use of cultural relativism, a historian can understand other past societies. Not to the level of the people who actually lived there and experienced the world in their own ways, but just enough to give an honest voice. Physicist Nigel Calder offered the analogy of looking at world history like a Martian, that is, separating yourself from all your personal opinions and identities, and looking around the world as if you had never been born on this planet. Each new society and culture is a learning experience, like being in kindergarten again. In this light, everything, from politics to science to the arts, are given a new perspective and a new light. From there, you can gain new understanding, not just of others, but of yourself, and tell the story of humanity in an enlightened way. That's easier said than done, but it can be done. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. On the next episode, we will begin at a time long before humans, before life on Earth. In order for there to be a world history, there had to be a world, and I will share the long-lost secrets that geologists and cosmologists have revealed about the formation of the Earth and its land and oceans, which laid the foundations for all that we know. That's the end of this episode of On the River of History. If you enjoyed listening in and are interested in hearing more, you can visit my website at www.mixcloud.com forward slash river of history. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along. Links in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at Cheer. You can also support this podcast by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash jtermel. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated and will help continue this podcast. Thank you all for listening, and never forget, the story of the world is your story, too. <laughs>